Hello, it's Tuesday the 23rd of November and I'm Jim White sitting in for Andrew Pearce who is using a well-earned break to work on his abs. And this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming direct from the Daily Mail newsroom. After Boris Johnson's wittering waffle of a speech to the CBI, I'll be asking, is it car crash statesmanship or clever diversionary tactics? A new BBC documentary about the royal family has not gone down well with the firm. Will this mean an end to cooperation between the Beeb and Buckingham Palace? And futurologists tell us by 2036 we'll all be eating locusts. Really? We'll be hearing from someone who knows. Britain will be the first country in the world to beat the pandemic, Nadim Zahawi claimed today as experts insisted that the UK will avoid a fourth wave currently threatening Europe because it went ahead with Freedom Day. Mr Zahawi, the former vaccines minister, said it was absolutely the right thing to do to drop all restrictions in July and allow the virus to spread during the warmer months when the NHS was less busy. And many experts agree that despite the fact the epidemic is becoming increasingly unpredictable and Britain's daily COVID cases have been rising after children return from half term, it's unlikely to lead to an alarming spike because some 20% of Brits are now triple jabbed, double the number in Austria, which today went into a full lockdown and three times that in Germany, where vaccines are set to become compulsory. Uh, with me to discuss all this is David Matthews, Professor of Virology at the University of Bristol. Uh, Professor Matthews, is Zahari right to be so optimistic? Um, yes, I think he is. Uh, I've been optimistic for quite some time, actually, particularly even before the summer when you saw the initial results of the vaccine coming out. Uh, and I think we've uh, we've had a few things in our favour, a few things that have gone our way uh, in addition to the vaccine. But certainly the vaccine rollout um, and the success of the vaccine rollout is the bedrock on, upon which uh, this success we're seeing now is uh, based. Yeah, that the, the vaccine rollout, uh, I, I can understand. But Zahawi seemed to be very keen on Freedom Day and actually unleashing everybody at the same time. Do you, do you see a link there with uh, the ability to um, kind of suppress the pandemic? Yeah, I think there's an argument for that indeed. I think um, I think it's difficult to be certain, but I think time will tell that actually yeah, allowing, um, allowing a, a greater spread of the virus perhaps over the summer when the NHS was under less pressure uh, has worked in our favour. And now we've got a large number of people in the boat that I'm in, actually, who've been double jabbed and then exposed to the Delta variant. Uh, and because of the double jab, my infection was mild. Um, and now I almost certainly have uh, a very strong, a very robust and very broad immune response to uh, the virus, which will probably see me through the winter without any further problems and possibly even beyond that. Well, one of the interesting things I've noticed about this, and perhaps you can clear things up for me, the number of cases in Britain seem to have been flatlining around thirty to 40,000 a day since mm. the beginning of September. Why haven't there been the kind of peaks and troughs that we're seeing in Europe? I suspect it's a, it, there's a combination of things. Of course, as I said, underlying all this is the vaccine, which is helping. Yeah, But I think as well, there's other aspects as well, such as the, you know, the widespread access to lateral flow tests, for example, as soon as I felt slightly ill, I took a lateral flow test. The first one was negative, but the next day it was positive. And then at that point, I isolated. And so I didn't go around infecting other people. 
So I, I, the chances of me infecting other people is reduced. Yeah, so that helps to sort of even out the peaks and troughs. You sort of, uh, hopefully, if people follow the advice, get the vaccine, and if they don't feel great, take a lateral flow test. And if you are lateral flow positive or do it regularly, then isolate. Then it will spread the load of uh, of the virus making its way through the community over time. And I suspect that's a combination of those things that's helping us uh, take a, a nice even, if you like, um, uh, um, sort of numbers that don't spike too hard and uh, over time. Because you're right, since July, we've had 30 to 40,000 cases a day now, more or less without too many uh, uh, leaps and troughs. Uh, one of the things about the, the virus, though, is that it's different in different parts of the country. And it seems that, particularly in Northern Ireland and maybe Scotland, they're going to start bringing back some sort of restrictions. Does that suggest we're going to be forever living with masks or testing or, or, or restrictions on travel? And we'll never actually get rid of it completely? Um, well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things there. I think, it's, first of all, the thing to make crystal clear to everybody is that we are never getting rid of this virus. So everybody will be infected with this virus one day, sooner or later, and then they'll be infected again and again and again, because this virus is going to be with us forever yeah, and is never going to go away. So anybody who's thinking, oh, if I just hold my nerve or put a bag on my head for long enough, I'll dodge it. You won't dodge it. The virus will just get to you eventually, which is why it's so important to be vaccinated, because you definitely don't want your immune system to be untrained when it meets this thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that over time, uh, as people are vaccinated and then exposed, as I am, uh, they'll build up a nice, robust immune response so that when they meet the virus in the future, whatever variant that is, they will be able to defeat it again and again and again. And ultimately, what will happen is, I think, is that this virus will become a common cold, just like the other uh, cousins of this virus uh, that have existed for quite some time in humans. Uh, and before that happens, there's the um, issue of Christmas. I mean, do you think we can confidently go and order our turkey and invite the neighbours over? Uh, well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but you think you you don't see any further restrictions coming in that will stop that happening? Well, I think, you know, as everybody knows so far, it's very hard to predict what this virus will do, uh, even, even if you're an expert on the subject. Uh, and there's always the possibility that there'll be some new sidestep from this virus that we weren't expecting. But I think all the data we're seeing so far suggests that we probably will make Christmas without any further lockdowns or restrictions. Um, I think the important thing that we need to focus on now, if we need to focus on anything really, is talking to that last 10% who are not vaccinated, who now make up the bulk of hospital admissions uh, for COVID, and, and get to understand why they're hesitant, talk to them, and, and hopefully persuade them to get the jab, because that will have a, a big impact on on the burden on the NHS, um, which has a lot of things to do without having to deal with people who've turned down a safe and effective vaccine. Interesting. Thanks very much indeed, Professor David Matthews of Bristol University. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and videos. And remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. 
the BBC was accused of giving credibility to overblown and unfounded claims about the royal family last night as it broadcast a documentary about William and Harry. The first episode of The Princes and the Press detailed media coverage of the young royals from 2012 to 2018 when Harry and Meghan became engaged. In a joint statement, Buckingham Palace, Kensington Palace and Clarence House last night said that it was disappointing that the broadcaster had chosen to air allegations surrounding Harry and Meghan's departure from Britain. Buckingham Palace has reportedly threatened a boycott on future projects with the BBC after courtiers were not allowed to view the programme before the first episode was aired. So, uh, to discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Robert Jobson, uh, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard. Robert, one complaint was that they didn't get a chance to see it in advance. Is Buckingham Palace usually given the chance to review programmes about the Royals before they're aired then? Well, I don't know about the ins and outs of um, the BBC because, of course, it's got a special status, but no is the answer. I wouldn't have expected them to see a documentary even if it was on any particular channel beforehand. And Yes, it should be given the, given the outline of what's in it and given a right to reply if there are allegations in that documentary that need to have a right to reply. But I must admit, I think they've got this one a little bit um, wrong. I mean, they seem to, all they seem to have done is bolster the viewing figures of the documentary by coming out with these statements uh, and issuing that statement and um, driving a narrative that didn't actually seem to be there. Actually, When I watched the programme, when I was in the programme, obviously I didn't have sight of the entire programme, but um, it certainly didn't have the the oomph on the power that seemed to be suggested. Maybe part two's got it all in it. So it wasn't shock horror then? I mean, when you watched it, you didn't think, oh, I didn't know that. No, I, I didn't. And I must admit, I thought the journalists involved were fairly, apart from a couple of sort of slightly big egos, I thought they were pretty stri- fairly straightforward and spelt out um, what the nature of the relationship with the palace and the, and the press has been over the past few years. I mean, look, the reality the reality is, you know, it's not been good in certain areas with stories um, coming of the so-called split between Harry and William, which, of course, has, has been the main narrative now for the last two or three years. And, of course, that involved the, the Meghan Markle's arrival on the scene. And, um, you know, she does seem to, wherever she goes, she does seem to sort of um, cause a bit of a fuss when it comes to family family arrangements, her own family weren't talking to her, and, she, and Harry was saying on BBC, oh, not the royal family, it's the family she never had. That caused a kerfuffle, and now she seems, they both seem to be outcast and have disappeared to the other side of uh, the Atlantic. So, look, I didn't think there was much in it that shocked me. Um, I thought it was a fairly balanced piece. I must be honest. I, I was expecting what, you know, a lot more. I the BBC obviously has very good contacts with Buckingham Palace. I mean, we saw that in the in the programmes they did after Prince Philip died. Do you think there'll be repercussions for them? Do you think that this will lead to a split, or is that just a, a, a threat? No, I think it's bluff and bluster. I mean, how can they possibly expect to do coverage of, say, you know, not wishing it to happen, but a major national event like the Queen's, death and funeral without the BBC is ludicrous. I think that if they are saying that, then they are they are foolhardy and um, that they need the BBC more than the BBC needs them. I, I really think that that would be a stupid thing to do. and It would be a sort of 
mistake in the way they handled it, they were given a chance to, to, to make a comment about these documents and they were told briefly what was in it. I think they've probably just gone a bit over the top. Um, but, you know, we've been seeing some strange things happening in Buckingham Palace and the other palaces' PRs lately, you know, outright lying that the Queen was um, not in hospital when she was, so that she was at Windsor Castle. You know, that sort of thing never used to happen and under in the 30 years that I've been covering the royal family. And when I started, it was Charles Anson as the press secretary of the, of the Queen. You know, it just would never have happened. Interesting. Uh, listen, the first episode went up to 2018. Second episode is presumably going to be talking about the rift, about Meghan and Harry going back to the the United States. Um, do you think they're going to be even more upset when they see that? Well, the only thing is, is I think this, it, it, you can't rewrite history. What happened, happened. I mean, they're obviously going to have to include Panorama too, aren't they? The, the fact that the, bash, the BBC got a, a right bashing over the Bashir uh, fraudulent claims that led to Diana um, given the interview she did. Although I must stress again, I think that if the BBC and Bashir hadn't got that interview for whatever nefarious means he got, she would have found an outlet to say what she wanted to say. I mean, you know, I was around at that time. The Princess of Wales was clearly very wanting to have her point of view. And, and, and I think a lot of people are rewriting history, including Prince William and others, by saying change the whole dynamic between my parents. No, it didn't. The parents were at war at the time. He was a little boy. So I, I think that there's a lot of rewriting of history going on. And I don't, you know, I'm for one, don't agree, agree with that. I think that the princess would have said what she said. Now, as to the second half of this documentary, it's going to deal with some pretty painful elements um, that were going on at the time. And that includes this, this breakup of, um, of Meghan and Harry and the royal family. And that, without they may not want to revisit all this at this moment in time, but it happened and the BBC are entitled, in my opinion, to do a documentary that revisits what happened historically. Interesting, Robert. I suspect viewing figures are going to be much greater as a result of this. So um, many thanks, Robert Jobson, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard. Visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or tweet Andrew on at ToryBoyPierce. This afternoon, the Prime Minister is gathering his cabinet after 19 MPs fired a warning shot against his leadership by voting against watering down the cap on care costs last night, while dozens more abstained. The government's plan still went through due to its huge 77-strong majority, but alarm bells are sounding in Downing Street that the vote is reflective of growing Conservative concerns about the Prime Minister, particularly after Mr Johnson delivered a chaotic performance at the CBI conference, with the hall at one point left in awkward silence after he lost his thread during a keynote speech. He also raised eyebrows with an extended riff on the children's cartoon character Peppa Pig. He made car engine noises and compared himself to Moses. Well, with me to discuss this apparent leadership crisis is Paul Richards, former government advisor and author of How to Be a Spin Doctor. Paul, if you were working for him, would you have been tearing your hair out when Boris was speaking yesterday? Yes, it's one of those situations where the aides will be back in the back of the room just looking at each other with faces of horror. Um, as the scene was uh, played out. And, 
Yeah, it's, there's two things going on. One is he just obviously had a shocker in terms of a speech, losing his place. You know, that could be put down to a sort of bad day at the office. But I think there's a broader point, which is the discourtesy it's shown to a key stakeholder, the CBI. You know, it's it's a it's not a left wing organisation. It sort of should be his natural turf, and um, he couldn't really be bothered to put together a decent speech for them. I just think it shows really bad political management, which is what the Tories, um, the MPs, are really getting spooked by now. Do you think uh, if there was a plan, do you think it was one to draw attention away from the votes lost uh, during the care cost cap debate? I don't think there's a, a sort of that degree of subtlety and nuance to his leadership. I don't think there, you know, that is an interesting kind of theory, but I think it strays into conspiracy theory, to be honest. I think the reality was he wrote the speech on the way to the meeting. Um, he thought he could busk it because he was with friends. He thought he could tell a few jokes and be, you know, be Boris. And um, actually, the, the business leaders wanted to have some serious input about things like the cancellation of HS2 and sort of post-COVID recovery and, you know, how to get growth back into all parts of the economy. And they were treated to this kind of spectacle of sort of really, you know, an immature kind of approach. Really. So that's why people are so angry, not just the CBI, but um, Conservative MPs uh, as well. It's interesting that, Jim, isn't it? We, we kind of do judge our leaders on their ability to make speeches. Um, you know, you'll remember when IDS failed to de- deliver a decent speech, he was out. Um, Theresa May famously had an absolutely terrible time at the conference with the backdrop falling down and somebody handing her a P45 and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, she was out. So this is one of the litmus tests for leaders. Can you stand up and deliver a decent speech? And uh, yesterday he failed it. It, but it's not just speeches, is it? I mean, he, he seems to be making so many mistakes of judgment and, and U-turns by the dozen. Is that a reflection of poor advice? I think there is a there's a lack of uh, a, a senior figure at the heart of Downing Street. That is true. He hasn't really found somebody who can be that kind of chief of staff, senior advisor, you know, knocking heads together on his behalf kind of person, which every prime minister needs. So, you know, Blair had Alistair Campbell, for example. Um, so he hasn't got that going on. Um, I also just wonder if he's not very well. You know, I think the, the, maybe the long COVID symptoms, I mean, that's one of the things that gives you brain fog and you can, why you can lose your way in a, delivering a speech or whatever, and the sort of chaotic approach to things. It, you know, it might be that his health is not great having had COVID. Of course, he's um, susceptible to the long COVID uh, symptoms that so many people have got. So, you know, it's just, it's just the toughness of the job. But I think he's showing that he's not really up to it. Uh, I mean, the odd thing is he seems to be irritating all wings of his party. So if you were there, what advice would you give him to unite them? I mean, it is a stroke of brilliance, isn't it, that you can unite the entire Conservative Party against you, all the different wings who normally hate each other. Um, but, I mean, the advice must be for him to get out and talk to his members of Parliament, particularly the newer ones, the ones elected in 2019 in particular, because it's a mistake the Prime Ministers often make, is they assume the loyalty of the MPs who happen to wear the same rosette. Um, and what we saw in the votes in the Commons last night was that actually that loyalty can't be guaranteed people will start to vote against the government if they feel that the power is ebbing away from the, the PM. So he needs to get into the tea room, he starts he needs to start doing a bit of schmoozing, he needs to start to build up his alliances, particularly on the back benches and particularly amongst the so-called red wall seats of the people elected in 2019, because those will be the, those will be the ones who will turn against him quickest, because they will see their own seats disappear 
if the polls, uh, you know, are pointing downwards for the Conservatives. Uh, you, you mentioned polls there. I mean, is this a Westminster bubble issue or, or do you think the country is noticing his fumbling leadership? I mean, you're you're right, of course, that people are not paying huge amounts of attention to all of this. And I mean, most people will not really know that he made a speech at the CBI necessarily yesterday, but it does have a drip, drip, drip effect. And I think, you know, once it filters into popular culture and the comedy shows and, you know, into, into the tabloid newspapers and so on, it starts to kind of accumulate a view that this is a man who's time is uh, is running down you know and i think there's um there's a kind of aggregation of, of uh, different things that will lead to a a sense that it's time for a change um and then of course it's for the conservatives to decide what to do and their you know their history always suggests that they're pretty brutal in this situation they will get rid of a person if they think they're no longer a leader um no matter what the emotional attachment and not and regardless of their previous success you know um, they're out the door if they look like a liability. So what we may well see as a result of all of this is a, uh, a leadership contest. OK, Paul, you used to be uh, a spin doctor. I'm sure he's got your number. If Boris gave you a ring, would you go to his aid? Well, I, I would not, I don't think, because I think he's a busted flush. I think it's gone beyond the point of spin now. I think it's uh, pretty terminal. I think he's in a tailspin, and I don't think he's gonna, <laughs> not going to be able to um, get himself out of that. I think once the... Once the process begins, as it has, I think it's almost impossible to get out of that situation. Beyond the help of spin, that's a really sad thought. Uh, many thanks to Paul Richards, their former government advisor. Uh, now let's hear from Ruth Sunderland, a business editor of the Daily Mail, with our regular update on financial news. Uh, Ruth, Prince Charles has just opened a, a new billion-pound science centre in Cambridge built by AstraZeneca. What's going to go on there? Well, it's just going to be amazing. You know, um, Jim, it's not that often I get really excited about the opening of a science lab, but the, this new discovery <laughs> discovery centre is, is a science lab and, and then some. So um, it's going to be based in the Cambridge Biomedical campus and they're going to be more than 2,200 scientists there and they're going to be working on really cutting-edge biomedical research you know of the sort really that we've seen that's produced um, the COVID vaccine that's been so effective here and and um, helped so many people and helped the whole economy really to get through the, the the pandemic and the hope here is that this amazing facility which is going to be open so it's going to have um, not just for AstraZeneca, it'll mainly be AstraZeneca, but there'll be others, smaller firms, younger firms, it will be open to them as well. That this will just really give us a kickstart. The UK already does brilliantly in this area, but the hope is that this will push us to the next level. Um, centres in the US like Boston and like San Francisco are absolutely brilliant at all of this, and we want to be up there with them. And Pascal Sorio, the boss of AstraZeneca, He's saying, you know, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be up there with the, with the best of the world. Now, uh, they had this great partnership, AstraZeneca, over the vaccine with Oxford University. So is this a kick in the teeth for the, uh, <laughs> for, for the Oxford lot? No, I, so I, I think I think it isn't. I, 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 I mean, it's a great it's a great question. Um, no, I, I think that they will collaborate with all sorts of people. I think what's good, you know, anything that promotes our great universities 
whether that's Oxford, Cambridge or the many other great universities that we also have in this country is all, is good for all of them. So I, I know there's rivalry, but I don't think I don't think it would be seen like that at all. Interestingly, you know, Pascal has also been saying that it's possible that one reason um, the UK has done better um, than than some other countries with COVID is the nature of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, no, I won't try attempt to go into the technicalities of, of the science, but I think what you have here is a great triumph of academia and the commercial world coming together. And, you know, that that's fantastic. And I mean, something that I think we should mention as well is that this centre was promised back in 2014 um, by Pascal Sorio at a time when Astra had been um, the, the target of a hostile takeover offer by Pfizer of the US. He very bravely repelled that offer and this is the fruit of it. And, you know, it's fantastic, I think, that we've got an independent Anglo-Swedish company that's producing such great results, great research, you know, and, and has come up with a fantastic vaccine. But Ruth, you're the business editor. So what will this do for the economy, not just in Cambridge, but the mm. whole country? I think there will be positive effects for the for the for the whole country out of this. Um, if we're going to compete post Brexit on a global stage, we are not in the kind of low price commodity zone here you know there are there are other places that we can't compete with on that we have to be right up there in the very high level value added part of the economy um, and we have some of the best scientific brains in the world in this country and this kind of center where you've got um, public companies and you've got industry coming together with the academic world and really turbocharging the innovations and getting them out to market, you know, that is going to be a huge part of our prosperity in the future. It really is. Many thanks, Ruth Sunderland, uh, the business editor, uh, and you can read her brilliant insights every day in the Daily Mail. The predictions of four of Britain's leading futurists and consumer business experts behind the NatWest Future Businesses report offers a vision of how British industry could look by the year 2036. Insect restaurants, virtual reality vacations and robots in the service industry are predicted to be commonplace in the next 15 years. The report was commissioned by the bank and was authored by, among others, the futurist and author Tom Cheesewright, who I'm delighted to say joins me now. Um, Tom, what what benefit does a, a report of this kind provide? I think if you look at it from the perspective of someone like NatWest, so the biggest business bank in the UK, about a quarter of all businesses bank with them, they're clearly keen for there to be more, uh, and particularly small businesses. You know, we're still a, a nation of shopkeepers, if you like, about four and a half million people employed in solo and self-employed, about six million people, I think, employed in small businesses. So they want to show people what the opportunities are for new businesses, for growth, for SMEs to take a, a hold on these new technologies, these new possibilities, uh, and start their own businesses. Because if you ask me and i've been running small businesses for the last 15 years there's never been a better time so what are some of the more dramatic changes that you're predicting that are likely to be on our high street for instance in the next 15 years 
Well, I think one that's really going to catch people's attention is robots. People are obsessed with robots. They love them in sci-fi, but they're increasingly a reality. We about buy about 10,000 robot vacuum cleaners and lawnmowers, I think, in the UK these days. We've got more robots coming as well, whether they're going to be in the kitchen or actually robot uh, wardrobes, perhaps, that can fold and press your clothes. And more and more, we're keen on things that last. We don't want disposable stuff. We have these new right to repair rules. So we see actually a rise in the number of robot repair shops, people looking after these things, fitting them, servicing them, teaching you how to use them and ensuring that they have long lives rather than just being dumped when they break. Um, another one is actually, I think, you know, when, you, when you've gone and dropped your robot off at the, uh, the repair centre, maybe you're a bit peckish, uh, you might want to go out to the Bug Burger Bar or the Bug Pizzeria, where we're seeing a, a rise in the use of insects and alternative proteins in our junk food for all sorts of reasons, partly because they're better for the planet, partly because actually um, you know, they're potentially better for us. We know that we should be maybe cutting a bit of meat out of our diets maybe replace it with some insect protein interesting i've been to a bug restaurant and i i, I think i've still got a bit of locust wings stuck in my teeth actually uh, from that <laughs> i mean seriously you 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 think that is going to be a big growth area well, I'll give you a good example. So a few years ago, I experimented with insect flour in pizza. You know, lots of people are trying to reduce their carb intake, increase their protein, or everybody going to the gym, consuming all these protein powders. Well, why not put it in something that's a bit of a treat in a pizza? You can replace about 30% of the flour in a pizza base with insect flour. You get a really nice nutty base that bakes really well. Uh, and, you know, it's slightly healthier, slightly better for the planet, and you increase your protein intake. Where's the loss? Uh, where does that fit in with vegetarianism? I mean, will vegans, how do they fit in with insects? I mean, are you able to eat a, if you're a vegan? I think you probably leave that down to your personal choice. I don't think most vegans would. Um, but, you know, that's still, you know, it's still a percentage of the population. I think it's about 10% of Londoners, much less across the rest of the country who are vegan. So, yeah, you know, we're all trying to maybe reduce our, our, our meat intake, but perhaps not everyone's doing it in the same way. Now, listen, when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were a kid, we always used to look at comics that, that it suggested by the year 2000, uh, we'd all be floating around on kind of hover cars and things like that. <laughs> never, never, ever happens. So, I mean, how serious are your predictions? Well, you say it's never happened, and yet we're probably only two or three years out from actually having flying cars. At least Seriously? Point -to -point runs. Yeah, absolutely. At least doing point-to-point -point runs between sort of cities and airports and things like that. Maybe not in the UK at first, although the government seems quite keen on the idea. Um, and so, yeah, we, these things are, it's always challenging to predict when something's going to happen. What is often quite easy. You, know, you can see lots of reasons why flying cars might be a good idea. Someone predicted a long time ago we'd have them, but it's taken a bit longer than anyone expected. And the same might be true of these things we've given ourselves a 15 year range i'd be amazed if most of them don't come true within the next 15 years well maybe some of them are a bit off but it could be that they just take a bit longer not because the technology is not there not because the possibility is not there but because nobody's done it and that's the critical thing with this report we're carving out opportunities for people we're showing people what the opportunities are but as they said in terminator there's no fate but what we make somebody's got to pick this up and run with it OK, Tom, I've got to put you on the spot here. What is a commonplace now that nobody predicted happening? That's a good question. Uh, what is commonplace now that nobody predicted? I mean, I can think, you know, reality television is probably a good one. But um, what else? I don't know. I mean, I mean, don't be wrong. There are certain trends that absolutely baffle me. Um, you know, sort of the, the uh, um, you know, certain clothing trends, but... 
Yeah, I, I think most most things have been predicted by somebody because if they weren't, they wouldn't have come about. Yeah, I mean, for instance, um, on the high street, people are not using cash and it's all become cards. Was that foreseen a long time ago? Yeah, absolutely. Although it's a really good example of this difficulty of predicting when. We all had our sort of curves of when cash would collapse to maybe not completely, but to maybe 5% of transactions. Uh, and then COVID comes along and you know, the number of cash transactions halved overnight. Um, and so, you know, these the things are, you know, we could see the direction of travel. We knew roughly what was going to happen, but exactly when it was going to happen was, was, was accelerated by this, this great unforeseen, or actually, no, I say unforeseen catalyst. Now, lots of people did foresee COVID. Uh, I mentioned it in my last book. Um, the uh, World Health Organization had this whole task group looking at uh, the possibility of pandemic X, as they called it, they called it at the time. And they just hadn't quite got around to working out how to deal with it yet. Oh, well, let's hope that they do uh, by 2036. Uh, my thanks to Tom Cheese right there, the futurist and author. That's all we have time for for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. I'm Jim White, standing in for Andrew Pearson. I'll be back tomorrow. Until then, have a great evening. <laughs> <laughs>